We're the largest global research center, and we have one of the largest global collections of Lepidopter butterflies and moths. Kind of our centerpiece exhibit is the Butterfly Rainforest, which is a completely immersive living tropical forest filled with free-flying butterflies, birds. There's fish in the water, turtles, over 400 different varieties of plants. It's unlike almost any other exhibit that you will find out there. They're a source of delight to many of us, but the migratory monarch butterfly is under threat. It's been placed on the endangered species list by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which is the world's leading authority on the status of biological diversity. While the Western population is at greatest risk of extinction, the Eastern population, which makes a stopover in Florida while migrating from Mexico to the upper US and Canada, also has shrunk significantly. And this is not the only butterfly struggling for survival. We're going to talk today about UF's focus on butterfly conservation and research. Our guest is Jarrett Daniels, Associate Chair for the Department of Natural History and Curator at the McGuire Centre for Lepidoptera and Biodiversity at the Florida Museum of Natural History. Welcome, Jarrett. Thank you for having me. Why butterflies? Where did your interest in these creatures come from? Well, I was lucky. I grew up in rural Wisconsin, and my parents had a large yard, and as most kids I loved insects, and I know I really wanted to go into a career helping the environment. And at that time, insect conservation was still kind of a emerging field. And butterflies, you know, kind of the charismatic microfauna out there for conservation. So it was a great opportunity to kind of uh, catapult conservation work through the eyes of insects. So can you tell us about the Butterfly Rainforest in the McGuire Centre at the Florida Museum of Natural History? I understand that we have the largest collections-based research and education centre in the world that is focused on butterflies and moths. That is correct. Yeah, we're the largest global research centre and we have one of the largest global collections of Lepidopter butterflies and moths. And we also have a very large public space that has exhibit galleries and kind of our centerpiece exhibit is the Butterfly Rainforest, which is a completely immersive living tropical forest filled with free-flying butterflies, birds. There's fish in the water, turtles, over 400 different varieties of plants. It's unlike almost any other exhibit that you will find out there. And around how many butterflies do we have in the rainforest? It vacillates, but on any given day, about 800 to 1,000 free-flying butterflies, and they come to us from all around the world, and that diversity changes regularly. So one nice thing about that exhibit, if you come in August and you come back in October, it's going to be different. So truly a living exhibit. It is. What about the center's collection? How many butterflies and species of butterflies can we find there? Well, we have a little north of 12 million specimens and rapidly growing. We're one of the largest global collections and arguably the fastest growing global collection. So we don't aspire to be the largest. We want to be the most well utilized as a research facility. And what do you mean by that? Do you mean other researchers coming in or do you also mean people who are just general public members coming in and taking a look? Well, hopefully a little bit of both. I mean, we certainly aim at a global research community to use our collections and the associated data. But as you 
probably know the Florida Museum is the national leader for the digitization of biological collections. And so those data will eventually be available online for anybody to utilize. So the general public included educators, researchers. So at some point, no longer will you need to travel to Gainesville to visit the collection. You can download all those data available online and researchers can ask really big questions about global change or other impacts to the environment using our data combined with data around the world. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that actually entails? How do you create this kind of digitization of the collection? So essentially, it's uh, much like what you might assume. It's the detailed images of each specimen, the upper side and underside, and then the translation or the data that is associated with that specimen would be also available to a global research audience. So you could download the image data and the associated, you know, written data from that specimen, which would give you everything from who collected it, where was it collected, even the GPS points to the color of the organism, if you were looking at variation. So, you know, it's almost, um, it's a huge wealth of potential data out there. And how many butterfly species do we have in our state and in North America as a whole? Well, Florida is a great state for butterfly watching and butterfly gardening. We have about 190 species of butterflies, most of any state east of the Mississippi. And that number does vacillate because we're so close to the Caribbean and we have strays coming in occasionally as well. And then in the US and Canada, about 800 species. So a, a lot of butterflies to enjoy. And at any given point in Florida, you could reliably encounter about 65 different species. So again, a great state for enjoying these wonderful organisms. Absolutely. What about worldwide? Uh, worldwide, a little less than 20,000 species of butterflies. So what's the most common butterfly in Florida? That's a really difficult question because it really depends on where you are in Florida, where you live. So if you're in North Florida, you're going to get species that are more similar to the Carolinas. If you're in Miami and the Florida Keys, you're going to get butterflies that are often more associated with the Caribbean. But if you're in South Florida, some really common species would be the cloudless sulfur, which is the large yellow migratory sulfur. If you're in North Florida or Central Florida, you might get the Gulf fritillary, which is an orange butterfly, looks very similar to the monarch. It also is migratory. The common buckeye is this beautiful little brown butterfly with target-shaped eye spots. So it really depends, but there are a lot of really common butterflies that adapt well to urban environments that people can see every day just looking out of their window. And is the monarch population in Florida different from other monarch populations? It's a little different. So we have in Southeast Florida, the only non-migratory population of monarchs in the US in North America. And then we have migratory monarchs that come through Florida each fall on their way to Mexico. But we, increasingly, we have monarchs that breed throughout the winter along the Gulf Coast and in Florida, primarily because of climate warming under global climate change, and also the use of tropical milkweed, which is a commonly available commercial milkweed, but a non-native to Florida. So it doesn't die back during the winter, it remains green and vegetative. And when monarch butterflies that are migrating encounter that plant, they can actually fall out of migration and breed. And this may sound wonderful for a home gardener, but if you're in Tallahassee in January, you're going to have a freezer frost event and your plants are going to get frozen back and your butterfly caterpillars are going to die. So it's not good biologically for the butterfly. And speaking of changes in, in our climate, what about these high intensity storms? Do they have an effect on our butterflies? 
They do. A, a lot of species that may live in South Florida or the Florida Keys on very low-lying islands or on coastal environments, the intensity of these storms could, you know, literally wipe some of these populations off the face of the earth uh, for really rare species. So a lot of the butterflies that we work with are in South Florida and often occur in island populations. And so, you know, the increasing intensity and frequency of cyclones is a big concern, as is, you know, sea level rise. And you look at these creatures, they seem so delicate, and it's quite amazing to think that they are flying the kinds of distances or traveling the kinds of distances that they do travel. Can you give us a sense of what the longest migratory path is? So within North America, monarchs can travel up to 3,000 miles, which is an amazing feat for a small insect. It's hard to imagine even a bird flying that. And that's, you know, a long distance from southern Canada down to the mountains of central Mexico. And, you know, it's a perilous journey, obviously, for an insect, but, you know, millions of them make it every year. So this is, you know, not unusual. How long does it take? Uh, it takes several weeks. Uh, they can fly several hundred miles a day, and often, depending on how storm systems move or high-level wind moves, they, they take advantage of a lot of that and can glide long distances as well. But they need to feed a lot on that journey. You know, think of them like a little hummingbird that is flying around your yard. It's expending a lot of energy, so they need to refuel on their journey. So you know, having available, abundantly blooming plants along their journey is sort of their pit stops, their gas station if you will, to refuel. How long does a butterfly live? On average, most butterflies about two to three weeks. So they're very short-lived, which is surprising to a lot of people. And essentially, adult butterflies are the reproductive stage. So their goal is to mate and as lay as many eggs as they can before they die or are eaten or you know just pass away. So in some cases, these butterflies might start the journey, but they don't reach the end of the journey. So it's different with um, migratory species like the monarch. So during the summer months, they breed and the adult butterflies may only live a few weeks. But in late summer and fall, they get cues from the environment like decreasing day length and decreasing temperatures. And that triggers a physiological response in the butterfly that changes their pathways from egg production and reproduction to building up fat body like a hibernating organism. And so that's their fuel for making that long distance migratory journey. So they are not reproductive when they're migrating. And as a result, those individuals can live for several months as an adult butterfly. Can you tell us a little bit more about the plants that butterflies like? Yeah, so most butterflies as adults feed on flower nectar, and they tend to be generalists. So they'll feed on whatever they can get nectar from. So it's a great way to start in your home landscape, planting an abundance of flowering, colorful plants. And then once you know the butterflies that you see regularly in your yard, then you can do a little bit more research and identify what plants their caterpillars need and then source those plants and include those plants in your landscape. That way your garden has the resources for the adult butterfly and the resources for the developing caterpillars so you support the entire life cycle of a butterfly. Do they see colors in the same way we do or do they see them more intensely? So they can see more broadly than we can into the ultraviolet. And so what we know from research that we've done and others have done is kind of the composition of your yard also matters. So larger clusters of plants or waves of color are more attractive to pollinating insects, butterflies included, and also in many ways more attractive to us. So kind of designing your yard like a landscape architect would, larger colors and don't take like the kid in the candy store approach where you buy one of every plant and kind of have the Monet 
gray like polka dot yard. You want swaths of color in your landscape. And do they happen to like one color more than the other? Or it's more just this having a broad kind of block of color? So that's an interesting question. So they are generally attracted to bright colors, you know, pinks, reds, oranges, but there are many butterfly species that like other colors, whites, greens, yellow. So I tell people, you know, plant what you like, plant a, a diversity of color, plant a diversity of flower form because, you know, butterflies feed with a proboscis, a feeding tube. And so long tubular blossoms are only accessible to some butterflies that have a very long proboscis. So the shape of the blossom, the color palette, you know, kind of use your own imagination and pick plants that are diverse and that you like as well. Are there other things that we can do in our gardens or elsewhere to help butterflies? Uh, I think, you know, reduce the use of insecticides. I mean, they are insects after all, and so they're very sensitive to direct application or drift of insecticides. And I think another thing that we can do is, you know, get out and enjoy your yard, look and learn about the butterflies. I tell people, you know, park a lawn chair in front of your garden, just sit and watch and bring your kids out there and get your neighbor excited. Because if we can, you know, expand this across a community, then we're really cooking with gas. We're really improving the scenario out there. We have to rebuild the habit that we as humans have uh, have altered and destroyed. So now I'm going to ask the tough question. Do you have a favorite? That's a really good question. So um, I would probably say one that I've been working on for over 30 years, which is an endangered swallowtail found only in Southeast Florida called Shouse's Swallowtail. And the reason is I met my wife during the work on that butterfly. So it's very meaningful to me personally. That's beautiful. So I get a sense that it has a tail that references a swallowtail, but can you describe what else it looks like? Sure. So it's um, kind of a brown and yellow butterfly. For those that might know a giant swallowtail that they see flying in the yard, it looks very similar. But this butterfly was the first insect added to the U.S. endangered species list and uh, remains the only swallowtail in the U.S. on the endangered species list. It's found only in Southeast Florida, and uh, we've been working on it for uh, many, many years. And in 2012, it was down to only four individuals remaining in the wild that were known. And so today, through the work of our lab and a lot of other collaborators, it's now above 1,200 individuals in the wild. So we're making progress. And the monarch butterfly, of course, has now been classified as an endangered species. How did it become endangered and what does that mean for the future of the species? So the monarch populations across uh, North America have declined in the East about 84% over the last 25, 30 years, and in the West, almost 99%. So this is something that I think most biologists would never have assumed a very common species could have declined so significantly. Uh, most of that is driven by habitat loss, climate change, you know, the same other main threat to biodiversity globally. And the recent listing under the IUCN red list is, is more of a categorical listing. It draws attention to the plight of the monarch, but it doesn't really have legal protection such as under the endangered species list of the U.S. And it still is petitioned for listing under the U.S. endangered species list. So it really draws attention. It identifies what can be done to help and also questions that should be asked to help fill in gaps of our understanding about why the butterfly has declined in the first place. So what can our listeners do to help conserve the population of monarch butterflies and for that matter, all butterfly pet populations? 
The nice thing about the monarch, it's a cosmopolitan species that occurs where humans occur. And so most species need resources, host plant material for their caterpillars and nectar plants for the adult butterflies to feed on. So the monarch embodies what you can do in your own backyard. You can plant, you know, host resources and nectar resources, a bounty of colorful flowers and other plants that will act as habitat for that butterfly and also draw on a wide range of other pollinating insects, hummingbirds, other butterfly species. So what you do in your own landscape really does matter. And monitoring, I understand there's some kind of monitoring network for butterflies. There are a number of different monitoring networks across the country. Most are state-based. And then, of course, uh, larger citizen science projects like iNaturalist that uh, capture broad data. We have a Florida butterfly monitoring network in our home state. And you know we're really looking at tracking common species and how they're doing over time. And the monarch is arguably one of the most well-studied insects globally. And it's monitored in Mexico and over winning grounds. And then, of course, a number of different citizen science projects, including Journey North and Monarch Watch, monitor it. And how do you contribute to that if you are interested? Uh, So both Journey North and Monarch Watch are very easy. You can go online, sign up, and basically it tracks either the adult sightings or the sightings of the immature stages, trying to understand um, how timing and each year's populations kind of ebb and flow. Can you tell us a little bit more about the research that's being done at the moment? So at the McGuire Center, we have a diverse faculty and graduate student body and and literally work on a wide range of things from the evolution of butterflies and kind of building out the tree of life of butterflies and moths to um, detailed behavioral work looking at, as an example, um, moth bad interactions at night, the kind of evolutionary arms race of defense and predation to understanding how to... um, restore butterfly populations, studying the ecology and uh, land management uh, for larger communities, um, to faunal inventories, kind of assessing what species occur in a given area. We have a current uh, inventory going for the DeLuca Preserve, which is the newly acquired land in South Florida that the University of Florida has. With all of the networks of people who are studying butterflies and insects around the world, it sounds like you've got a wealth of data. Are you using artificial intelligence to try to interpret that data and make sense of it all? Well, I think that's the grand goal with uh, the digitization of biocollections, that that data is very appropriate for the use of AI uh, technology to to ask deep questions, even to help um, in transcribe those those data into a more usable form. So um, the UF AI initiative is still in early days, and we, we certainly, museum data is very appropriate for that type of technology. So hopefully, yes in the future. And what about some of the partnerships that you have with other entities in terms of interpreting data that you're finding? So um, so that's a good question. And I don't know if I can speak as well to that, but, you know, certainly, you know, increasingly using data from community science platforms like iNaturalist that go along with museum data, um, you know, uh, I think, you know, trying to use as much data that's available out there uh, is is really really important because uh, it's it's the continuum of data. It's specimens that exist in the history of time of the species to understanding where the future is going with species and contemporary data. So it's 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 blending all those different data types together. Do you have any particular projects that you're working with or partnerships at the moment? 
Uh, so we we work on a lot of conservation projects, and and one that may be um, more unusual is uh, people often don't think of roadsides as being valuable conservation spaces, but I think they they can be. And so we have a a current project with the Department of Transportation in Florida to both revegetate um, retention basins along roadways for butterflies and pollinators, including the monarch, to also using uh, drones and machine learning to understand the and monitor the populations of native milkweed along roadways. So trying to be more efficient in data collection instead of having people go out and actually, you know, boots on the ground, collect data, see if we can be more efficient in using technology to collect those data. It's a really rewarding project. Yeah, it sounds quite unique as well. I think so. Hopefully it'll be a good model. And we've already had interest from other departments of transportation across the country and even uh, utility providers because they're interested in looking at monitoring habitat or material, plant material like milkweed for the monarch in utility easements. And so I think we can learn a lot from this sort of exploratory type of research. And it's, you know, I'm not an AI scientist, but it's really fun and it's just a blast learning new things. Now, this is something quite ingenious. You came up with the idea to create a new craft beer and use the proceeds to help conservation of the monarch butterfly. Can you tell us a little bit more about the story behind all of that? Sure. So we've been working with First Magnitude Brewing in Gainesville for the last three and a half years, and we launched a line of specialty butterfly beers several years ago, and we didn't know if it was going to be anything worthwhile. But To be clear, there's no butterflies used in the production no, of the beer. No, there are no butterflies used in production of the beer, but it resonated really well with uh, consumers. And so we launched a larger collaboration with First Magnitude, where we do two butterfly beers each year. And each beer, we try to make it a little more special, by adding components of, say, host plants or floral resources into the beer. And in one butterfly, we actually swabbed the butterfly and used the yeast from the butterfly in the brewing process. So as close as we can come to getting the butterfly in the beer. And then we also try to get bigger and better with every iteration. And so this current iteration is a beer called Rain, as Restore the Rain of the Monarch. And it's a national release. We're trying to get other breweries signed up. And if they download the recipe off our website and they brew the beer, we're asking for a percentage of proceeds come back to the University of Florida, then go on to a partner of ours, the Xerxes Society for Invertebrate Conservation, to rebuild monarch habitat across the U.S. And what kind of response have you had thus far? It's been, unfortunately, a little lukewarm at the moment. I think it's still a novel idea, and we're still coming out of the pandemic and some economic challenges for craft breweries, but we're going to keep trying. This, I think that's a good model. We're just going to have to keep trying. Keep pushing on it. Why should people care about butterflies? That's a great question. So I think there's a number of reasons. One is that they are aesthetically beautiful organisms. They mean different things to different people. And we preserve and conserve what we love. So butterflies are a very fond organism. They're also very ecologically important. They pollinate plants. They're food for a lot of other organisms. Uh, if you like migratory birds or birds in your yard, majority of the diet when they're feeding their young are caterpillars. So they're intricately tied to other organisms and the health of the environment. So I think they're, they just um, meet people in different ways. Jarrett, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Listeners, thank you for joining us. Our executive producer is Brooke Adams. Our technical producer is James Sullivan. And our editorial assistant is Emma Richards. I hope you'll tune in next week. <laughs>